Section 20 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikut Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 22 the anti-Jewish policies of Ignatiev. Part 1. 1. The vacillating attitude of the authorities. In the beginning of May 1881, the well-known diplomatist Nicholas Pavlovich Ignatiev was called by the Tsar to the post of Minister of the Interior. At one time, ambassador in Constantinople and at all times, a militant pan-Slavist, Ignatiev introduced the system of diplomatic intrigues into the inner politics of Russia, earning thereby the unenviable nickname of Father of Lies. A programmatic circular issued by him on May 6th declared that the principal task of the government consisted in the extirpation of sedition, i.e. in carrying on a struggle not only against the revolutionary movement, but also against the spirit of liberalism in general. In this connection, Ignatiev took occasion to characterize the anti-Jewish excesses in the following typical sentences. The movement against the Jews which has come to light during the last few days in the South is a sad example showing how men otherwise devoted to throne and fatherland yet yielding to the instigations of ill-minded agitators who fan the evil passions of the popular masses giving way to the self-will and mob rule and without being aware of it acting in accordance with the designs of the anarchist. Such violation of the public order must not only be put down vigorously but must also be carefully forestalled for it is the first duty of the government to safeguard the population against all violence and savage mob rule. These lines reflect the theory concerning the origin of the pogrom, which was originally held in the highest government spheres of St. Petersburg. This theory assumed that the anti-Jewish campaign had been entirely engineered by revolutionary agitators and that the latter had made deliberate endeavors to focus the resentment of the popular masses upon the Jews as a preeminently mercantile class for the purpose of subsequently widening the anti-Jewish campaign into movement directed against the Russian mercantile class, landowners and capitalists in general. Be this as it may, there can be no question that the government was actually afraid lest the revolutionary propaganda attach itself to the agitation of those devoted to throne and fatherland for the purpose of giving the movement a more general scope in accordance with the designs of the anarchists. As a matter of fact, even outside the government circles, the apprehension was voiced that the anti-Jewish movement would, of itself, without any external stimulus, assume the form of a mob movement, 
directed not only against the well-to-do classes but also against the government officials. On May 4, 1881, Baron Horace Ginzburg, a leading representative of the Jewish community of St. Petersburg, waited upon Grand Duke Vladimir, a brother of the Tsar, who expressed the opinion that the anti-Jewish disorders, as has now been ascertained by the government, are not to be exclusively traced to the resentment against the Jews, but are rather due to the endeavor to disturb the peace in general. A week after this visit, the deputies of Russian Jewry had occasion to hear the same opinion expressed by the Tsar himself. The Jewish deputation, consisting of Baron Ginzburg and the banker Sack, the lawyers Passover and Bank, and the learned Hebraist Berlin, was awaiting this audience with considerable trepidation, anticipating an authoritative imperial verdict regarding the catastrophe that had befallen the Jews. On May 11th, the audience took place in the palace at Katsina. Baron Ginzburg voiced the sentiments of boundless gratitude for the measures adopted to safeguard the Jewish population at this sad moment, and added, one more imperial word, and the disturbance will disappear. In reply to the euphemistic utterances concerning the measures adopted, the Tsar stated in the same tone that all Russian subjects were equal before him, and expressed the assurance that in the criminal disorders in the south of Russia, the Jews merely served as a pretext, and that it is the work of anarchists. This pacifying portion of the Tsar's answer was published in the press. What the public was not allowed to learn was the other portion of the answer, in which the Tsar gave utterance to the view that the source of the hatred against the Jews lay in their economic domination and exploitation of the Russian population. In reply to the arguments of the talented lawyer Passover and the other deputies, the Tsar declared, state all this in a special memorandum. Such a memorandum was subsequently prepared, but it was not submitted to the Tsar. For only a few months later, the official attitude towards the Jewish question took a turn for the worse. The government decided to abandon its former view on the Jewish pogroms and to adopt, instead, the theory of Jewish exploitation using it as a means of justifying not only the pogroms which had already been perpetrated upon the Jews, but also the repressive measures which were being contemplated against them. Under these circumstances, Ignatiev did not see his way clear to allow the memorandum in defense of Jewry to receive the attention of the Tsar. It is not impossible that the pacifying portion of the imperial reply, which had been given at the audience of May 11th, was also prompted by the desire to appease the public opinion of Western Europe, for at that time, European opinion still carried some weight with the bureaucratic circles of Russia. Several days before the audience at Katsina, the English parliament discussed the question of Jewish persecution in Russia. 
in the House of Commons, the Jewish members, Baron Henry de Worms and Sir H. D. Wolf, calling attention to the case of an English Jew who had been expelled from St. Petersburg, interpolated the Under Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Sir Charles Dilk, whether Her Majesty's government have made any representations to the government at St. Petersburg with regard to the atrocious outrages committed on the Jewish population in southern Russia. Dilk replied that the English government was not sure whether such a protest would be likely to be efficacious. A similar reply was given by the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Lord Granville, to a joint deputation of the Anglo-Jewish Association and the Board of Deputies, two leading Anglo-Jewish bodies which waited upon him on May 13, two days after the Gatina audience. After expressing his warm sympathy with the object of the deputation, the secretary pointed out the inexpedience of any interference on the part of England at the moment when the Russian government itself was adopting measures against the pogroms, referring to the cordial reception lately given by the emperor to a deputation of Jews. Subsequent events soon made it clear that the government represented by Ignatiev was far from harboring any sympathy for the victims of the pogroms. The public did not fail to notice the fact that the Russian government, which was in the habit of rendering financial help to the population in the case of elemental catastrophe, such as conflagrations or inundations, had refrained from granting the slightest monetary assistance to the Jewish sufferers from the pogroms. Apart from its material usefulness, such assistance would have had an enormous moral effect, inasmuch as it would have stood forth in the public eye as an official condemnation of the violent act perpetrated against the Jews, particularly if the Tsar himself had made a large donation for that purpose, as he was wont to do in other cases of this kind. As it was, the authorities not only neglected to take such a step, but they even went so far as to forbid the Jews of St. Petersburg to start a public collection for the relief of the pogrom victims. Nay, the governor-general of Odessa refused to accept the large sum of money offered to him by well-to-do Jews for the benefit of the sufferers. Nor was this the worst. The local authorities did everything in their power to manifest their solidarity with the enemies of Judaism. The street pogroms were followed by administrative pogroms, sui generis. Already in the month of May, the police of Kiev began to track all the Jews residing illegally in the city and to expel these criminals by the thousands. Similar wholesale expulsions took place in Moscow, Oriol, and other places outside the pale of settlement. These persecutions constituted evidently an object lesson in religious toleration and the Russian masses which had but recently shown to what extent they respected the inviolability of Jewish life and property 
took the lesson to heart. One hope was still left to the Jews. The law courts, at least being the organs of the public conscience of Russia, were bound to condemn severely the sinister pogrom heroes. But this hope, too, proved illusory. In the majority of cases, the judges treated acts of open pillage and of violence committed against life and limbs as petty street brawls, as disturbance of the public peace and imposed upon their perpetrators ridiculous slight penalties, such as three months' imprisonment, penalties, moreover, which were simultaneously inflicted upon the Jews who, as in the case of Odessa, has resorted to self-defense. When the terrible Kiev pogrom was tried in the local military circuit court, the public prosecutor, Strelnikov, a well-known reactionary who subsequently met his fate at the hands of the revolutionary, delivered himself on May 18 over a speech which was rather an indictment against the Jews than against the rioters. He argued that these disorders had been called forth entirely by the exploitation of the Jews who had seized the principal economic positions in the province, and he conducted his cross-examination of the Jewish witnesses in the same hostile spirit. When one of the witnesses retorted that the aggravation of the economic struggle was due to the artificial congestion of the Jews, in the pent-up pale of settlement, the prosecutor shouted, If the eastern frontier is closed to the Jews, the western frontier is open to them. Why don't they take advantage of it? This summons to leave the country, doubly revolting in the mouth of a guardian of the law, addressed to those who, under the influence of the pogrom panic, had already made up their minds to flee from the land of slavery, produced a staggering effect upon the Jewish public. The last ray of hope, the hope for legal justice, vanished. The courts of law had become a weapon in the hands of the anti-Jewish leaders. 2. The Pogrom Panic and the Beginning of the Exodus the feeling of safety which had been restored by the published portion of the imperial reply at the audience of May 11th was rapidly evaporating. The Jews were again filled with alarm, while the instigators of the pogrom took courage and decided that the time had arrived to finish their interrupted street performance. The early days of July marked the inauguration of the second series of riots the so-called summer pogroms. The new conflagration started in the city of Pereyaslav, in the government of Poltava, which had not yet discarded its anti-Jewish Cossack traditions. Pereyaslav at that time harbored many fugitives from Kiev who had escaped from the spring pogroms in that city. The increase in the Jewish population of Pereyaslav was evidently displeasing to the local Christian inhabitants. 420 Christian burghers of Pereyaslav, avowed believers in the Gospels which enjoin Christians to love those that suffer, passed a resolution calling for the expulsion of the Jews from their city 
and in anticipation of this legalized violence, they decided to teach the Jews a lesson on their own responsibility. On June 30th and July 1st, Pereyaslav was the scene of a pogrom marked by all the paraphernalia of the Russian ritual, though unaccompanied this time by human sacrifices. The epilogue to the pogrom was marked by an originality of its own. A committee consisting of representatives of the municipal administration, four Christians and three Jews, was appointed to inquire into the causes of the disorders. This committee was presented by the local Christian burghers with a set of demands, some of which were in substance as follows. That the Jewish aldermen of the town council, as well as the Jewish members of the other municipal bodies, shall voluntarily resign from these honorary posts as men deprived of civic honesty that the Jewish women shall not dress themselves in silk, velvet, and gold, that the Jews shall refrain from keeping Christian domestics who are corrupted in the Jewish homes religiously and morally, that all Jewish strangers who had sought refuge in Pereyaslav shall be immediately banished, that the Jews shall be forbidden to buy provisions in the surrounding villages for reselling them, also to carry on business on Sundays and Russian festivals, to keep salons and so on. Thus, in addition to being ruined, the Jews were presented with an ultimatum implying the threats of further military operations. As in previous cases, the example of the city of Pereyaslav was followed by the townlets and villages in the surrounding region. The unruliness of the crowd, which had been trained to destroy and plunder with impunity, knew no bounds. In the neighboring town of Borispol, a crowd of rioters, stimulated by alcohol, threatened to pass from pillage to murder. When checked by the police and Cossacks, they threw themselves with fury upon these untoward defenders of the Jewish population, and began to maltreat them until a few rifle shots put them to flight. The same was the case in Niezin, where a pogrom was enacted on July 20 and 22nd. After several vain attempts to stop the riots, the military was forced to shoot at the infuriated crowd, killing and wounding some of them. This was followed by the cry, Christian blood is flowing, beat the Jews, and the pogrom was renewed with redoubled vigor. It was stopped only on the third day. The energy of the July pogroms had evidently spent itself in these last ferocious attempts. The murderous hordes realized that the police and military were fully in earnest, and this was enough to sober them from their pogrom intoxication. Towards the end of July, the epidemic of vandalism came to a stop, though it was followed in many cities by a large number of conflagrations. The cowardly rioters, deprived of the opportunity of plundering the Jews with impunity, began to set fire to Jewish neighborhoods. This was particularly the case in the northwestern provinces, 
in Lithuania and White Russia, where the authorities had from the very beginning set their faces firmly against all organized violence. The series of pogroms perpetrated during the spring and summer of that year had inflicted its sufferings on more than 100 localities populated by Jews, primarily in the south of Russia. Yet the misery engendered by the panic, by the horrible apprehension of unbridled violence, was far more extensive, for the entire Jewish population of Russia proved its victim. Just as in the bygone Middle Ages, whenever Jewish suffering had reached a sad climax, so now too the persecuted nation found itself face to face with the problem of emigration. And as if history had been anxious to link up the end of the 19th century with that of the 15th, the Jewish affliction in Russia found an echo in that very country, which in 1492 had herself banished the Jews from her borders. The Spanish government announced its readiness to receive and shelter the fugitives from Russia. Ancient Catholic Spain held forth a welcoming hand to the victims of modern Greek Orthodox Spain. However, the Spanish offer was immediately recognized as having but little practical value. In the forefront of Jewish interest stood the question as to the land toward which the emigration movement should be directed towards the United States of America, which held out the prospect of bread and liberty, or toward Palestine, which offered a shelter to the wounded national soul. While the Jewish writers were busy debating the question, life itself decided the direction of the emigration movement. Nearly all fugitives from the south of Russia had left for America by way of the Western European centers. The movement proceeded with elemental force and entirely unorganized, with the result that in the autumn of that year, some 10,000 destitute Jewish wanderers found themselves huddled together at the first halting place, the city of Brody, which is situated on the Russo-Austrian frontier. They had been attracted hither by the rumor that the agents of the French Alliance Israelite University would supply them with the necessary means for continuing their journey across the Atlantic. The Central Committee of the Alliance, caught unprepared for such a huge emigration, was at its wit's end. It sent out appeals warning the Jews against the wholesale emigration to America by way of Brody, but it was powerless to stem the tide. When the representatives of the French Alliance, the well-known Charles Netter and others arrived in Brody, they beheld a terrible spectacle. The streets of the city were filled with thousands of Jews and Jewesses who were exhausted from material want with hungry children in their arms. From early morning until late at night, the French delegates were surrounded by a crowd clamoring for help. Their way was obstructed by mothers who threw their little ones under their feet, begging to rescue them from starvation. The delegates did all they could, 
but the number of fugitives was constantly swelling, while the process of dispatching them to America went on at a snail's pace. The exodus of the Jews from Russia was due not only to the pogroms and the panic resulting from them, but also to the new blows which were falling upon them from all sides, dealt out by the liberal hand of Ignatieff. End of section 20